We've been working our way through the book of Revelation since uh, the fall. We went through the first chapter and then chapters 2 and 3, which have to do with the letters sent to seven churches in Asia. Then chapter 4, John takes us to heaven and we get a, a vision there that continues on into chapter, into chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, the uh, kind of the meat of Revelation begins, which is the judgment that God is going to bring at a point in the future. Uh, so there are a couple of things that I want to point out before we actually dive into the chapter. As we go through from uh, from chapter 6 to chapter 18, which is the, the primary passages on the judgment that is poured out, what we're going to see is, is a series of narratives. It's not a single narrative that is in chronological order. It's a series of narratives, and within those narratives, there is some chronology. We see that, for instance, in chapter 6. We've got, we've got the scroll with seven seals. Jesus opens six of the seals, and each of those seals relates to a point of judgment. The fact that they're given to us, one, two, three, four, five, six, says that there's a sequence to them, and that that sequence is, matters. That's what the Lord gave us through the Spirit to John. We don't get to the seventh seal in Revelation chapter 6. Instead, chapter 7 deals with the 144,000 who are sealed and then a vision of heaven where uh, a great multitude is there in heaven. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, the Lamb opens... (coughs) Excuse me. In chapter 8, verse 1, the Lamb opens the seventh seal. Well, we have those kinds of interruptions frequently as we move through, through this section. We're not necessarily supposed to imagine that, that each one of these sections happens, happens in the chronological order that we have in the text. Some of them, I think, clearly overlap. I think an example of that would be the, uh, the two prophets in Jerusalem that we'll run into eventually. They're in Jerusalem for three and a half years. They've held back the rain. They've caused drought, and because of drought, they've caused famine. They're put to death. They lay in public for three days. The Lord raises them and takes them to heaven. If you begin at chapter 6 and you begin trying to figure out a chronology, it gets very hard to fit it into seven years. So what we have to remember is that what John is, is uh, witnessing and communing, communicating to us is a series of visions. It's prophecy. And prophetic time is not calendar time most of the time. Most of the time, prophetic time is measured event by event, not month by month. So we're going to see some things that appear to overlap other things. Uh, In fact, when we get to chapter 12, we see a picture of Israel as a woman who is pregnant. The baby boy she gives birth to is Jesus. We see the dragon who is Satan pursuing and persecuting the woman who then hides and gives birth. So at that point, we've pulled way out from the time that John is writing to look at history as a, as a broad picture of what happened with Israel, what happened with Satan, what happened with Christ. The reason that I bring this up is that at least some of the questions about Revelation have to do with those issues of time. When will this happen and when will that happen? And sometimes we don't know. 
Um, sometimes we're simply given these pictures and the Lord is going to bring all these about as he, as he purposes. Um, we're also going to see, and this is very important, and, and I will try to remind you of this frequently as we go through. We're going to see that, that God's judgment against the wicked world is systematic and methodical and meticulous it is not an explosion of anger, uh, a divine temp- temper tantrum. It's deliberate. It's the act of a holy judge who is, uh, through a series of, of acts on his part, bringing everything into final resolution. The elect to, to knowledge of Christ into eternal life and the wicked to eternal condemnation. The demonic realm to a, eternal condemnation as well. Um, and we'll see that. That's, that, that's a, an, a very important part of what we see is that it's deliberate and systematic. So let's begin at, at uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. John writes, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. Now we're going we're gonna to see this picture four times with these first four seals, that the living creatures speak out and say, come. And what that tells us is that the judgments that take place are not natural events that the Lord just kind of bends and repurposes to his use. He is deliberately bringing these things about. They're being commanded from heaven. They're being ordered by the Lord. Verse 2, he says, I looked and behold, a white horse... And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came, came out conquering and to conquer. The white horse represents leadership, certainly. The bow is a symbol of military power. The crown represents ruling. This rider on the white horse is sent out at a point in time conquering and to conquer. Uh, some views are, are pointing at this as being the Antichrist. I think that, again, because we're looking at a, uh, a vision, we're not looking at history in advance, we're looking at a vision. I think it's quite possible that what takes place is the militarization of the world and conflict taking place on the face of the earth. In 2014, a study showed that about 90% of the nations in the world were involved in a military conflict with another nation, 90%. Um, that doesn't mean that 90% of the earth's surface was suffering from warfare. That's a different equation. But 90% of the countries in the world, including the United States, have been, and for the majority of our history have been, involved in military conflict overseas, or military conflict, usually overseas for us. Um, when this judgment takes place, though, this 90% is going to be re- replaced by 100%, and the impact of it is not simply going to be military and theoretical. It is going to be global and worldwide. And it will be hard to find anybody who is not impacted by the military governmental conflicts that take place. Uh, those who are on earth are going to have reasons for those conflicts. They want to invade our borders. They want to harm us. We need to expand our territory. We want 
oil, we want rice, we want sugar, we want whatever it happens to be. But at the, at the, at the foundation of these conflicts and wars is the judgment of God. Uh, another point to remember as we go through is that the judgment of God is frequently not simply punishment for sin, but permission to commit more sin. So that judgment increases and the wrath of God increases. Verse 3 and 4, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. The Greek word here means fiery red or blood red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So peace is taken. Peace is taken. Now we're not talking about simply governmental leadership and military leadership. We're talking about simply the population. Um, I thought it was really bad after the election. It's really bad now, after the inauguration. We see peace being taken in our country. But it's not because of this. This has not yet happened. Imagine what happened in Washington, D.C. yesterday, and there's at least one demonstration where police had to get involved and either tear gas was fired or rubber bullets were fired, people were arrested. Imagine that just being the way that life is. And not simply population and government, but population and population, so that neighborhoods are feuding and at war with one another. It's an, it's an, an unimaginable level of violence. A sword is a, uh, an instrument of violence. The words of Scripture matter. So this, this rider is given a sword for, for the sake of violence, but the sword is described as a great sword. It's, it's a great sword like the fish that swallowed Noah was a, or uh, Jonah was a great fish. Something prepared by God. It's something divine in nature. Moving on to verse 5 then, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and behold a black horse. And the rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Black is the, cover, is the color of darkness, of course. Black is, is used to uh, depict sin in Scripture. It's used to depict ignorance in Scripture and need and lack. The writer has a pair of scales in his hands. These are not the scales of justice. These are the scales of commerce. Back in that day when you had a coin, the coin would be stamped with Caesar's face on it if you were in the the Roman Empire. But the way that you paid significant debts was by weighing out the coins. The coins were not produced with with a a huge degree of precision for weight. They could vary significantly. And so when you paid off a significant debt, you didn't just pay in the coins 30 coins or 50 coins. You weighed out a certain amount. That's why biblical amounts are often related in terms of weight of gold and weights of silver. And so a quart of wheat for a denarius, what does that mean? A denarius is a day's wage. For a a blue-collar average person, a denarius is a day's wage. (laughs) A quart of red Durham wheat, I I looked this up, 
Um, and this is unground now because they're not buying flour. They're not buying malta meal. They're not buying um, of cream of wheat. They're buying whole wheat. A quart of whole wheat contains 2,400 calories. Well, a man who works physically 10 or 12 hours a day is going to burn well over 2,400 calories in the course of that day. So what he's saying is that a famine has taken place, and because of this famine, a man who works hard for 10 or 12 hours earns enough money to buy enough food to go to bed hungry. If he's, if he's married and he has a child, he can get three quarts of barley for a denarius. The, the uh, calorie content of barley is a little bit higher. So the child is probably going to get enough to eat, but mom and dad are going to have enough food to go to bed hungry, night after night after night. It says uh, clearly... Do not harm the oil and the wine. It's, it's interesting, having come from California, um, wine industry is huge in California. And the drought that has hit California for years, it's, it's being dealt with right now, by the way, with the rain that they're getting. But uh, the drought that's hit California over the years has not really seriously damaged the wine industry because grapevines grow deep roots, they bring in groundwater, and they flourish in dry conditions. That's one of the reasons that in the Middle East you've, you've got a huge amount of wine in the Mediterranean region, even in North Africa. Not necessarily in the deep desert, but in places that get very little rainfall, grapevines flourish. They do fine. The same thing is true of olive trees. Olive grows flourish in dry weather. So don't harm the, the oil and the wine. This seems to be... Uh, sorry, guys, this seems to be a, a, a famine that specifically hits the breadbaskets of the world. You can't live on wine and oil. Some people might try. But you can't live on wine and oil. But, but consider this. If you don't get enough calories to maintain your own health for a day's wages, you're not going to buy wine and oil. Wine and oil at that time were staples that you could find in, in anybody's house. Everybody had wine. Everybody had jars of oil. It was used for all sorts of things, but not now. Not because they're hard to find, but because they simply don't have the money once they've bought enough food to survive. And so the, this famine is truly a significant famine. In verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And behold, I looked and behold a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Here's what I see here. Uh, first of all, pale here, the Greek word pale means yellow-green. So this is not pale like somebody who doesn't go out in the sun. This is pale like dead. This is the color of decay. That's the pale that's here. The writer's name is Death, and he's, he's got a friend coming with him, and that friend is Hades. So this is not death in general. This is not killing the plants and the animals and the fish and the birds and the people. This is killing the people. Hades has to do with people. 
And Hades is specifically the abode of the wicked now when they die. To be absent from the body for a Christian is to be present with the Lord, Paul says. We die here, we open our eyes, we're with him. I'm good with that. Hades is what happens to the wicked when they die. They don't lose consciousness. They don't cease to exist like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. They're aware. They know what's taking place. They know that they're waiting judgment. And so this is death specifically on the wicked. Death and Hades are given authority over a quarter of the earth. Quarter of the earth, uh, if you're dividing out the population evenly at this time, a quarter of the earth is 1.8 billion people. Now, you can divide out, it doesn't say a quarter of the people, it says a quarter of the earth. So you could divide out... Uh, in some places, in, in Africa, for instance, you could, you could take a huge percentage of the earth, I didn't do the math on this, and have a relatively small population. But if the quarter of the earth includes China, India, Pakistan, a quarter of the earth could be three or four billion people. So we don't know how many people are affected, but Hades and death are killing with the sword. That takes us back, by the way, to the first and second horses, They're killing with famine, which takes us back to the third horse. And then they kill with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Pestilence is disease and infection, plagues, physical plagues. (coughs) I think it all just fits really tightly together that when you have the kind of violence that is taking place with the first two horses and you have the kind of famine that's taking place with the third horse and you have in a very short span of time, a few months, hundreds of millions or a billion dying and you don't have the ability to deal with their remains, you're going to have disease. Disease beginning from the, the decay and the corruption of those bodies, but then you have the animals who eat those bodies, you have rats and mice and other vermin, you have the fleas and the ticks that feed on them, and wild animals of the earth, well, the wild, or wild beasts of the earth, the wild beasts of the earth, the predators, eat the herbivores of the earth, the herbivores of the earth are eating the same produce and the same kind of food that's destroyed in the famine. And so maybe what he's saying here is the same conditions that destroy uh, corn crops and barley crops and wheat crops and, and soybean crops are destroying the food that's eaten by, by deer and by other animals. And so the predators having no more prey, begin looking at people. It's a picture of, in a sense, and it's repeated a little bit in in the sixth seal, it's a picture of the earth itself, creation itself, turning on man. Man was originally given dominion over the earth to tend it, to uh, dominate it, to subdue it, and to make it produce for him in, in the judgment of God. Um, the creation suffers because of man's sin and because of our fall. There's a point where creation begins to pay man back through this. So that's the first four. 
When we come to the fifth seal, the circumstances change. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. So the first four seals are a view of what's going to take place on earth. The fifth seal is a view of what's taking place in heaven. And John says, I saw the souls of those disembodied souls of those who had died for the testimony of Jesus Christ. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, we're not told that these are people who died in the Great Tribulation. And in fact, the Great Tribulation is just beginning. So this, these are martyrs going back to Stephen. These are martyrs really going back to the prophets of God who were killed by the leaders of Israel that Jesus talked about. And they pray for vengeance. Now, Jesus said that we are to love our enemies, pray for those who despitefully use us, Matthew chapter 5. We see Stephen, or Jesus himself, forgiving his killers for crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. Not forgiving them every sin that they've ever committed, but forgiving that act. Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, asks the Lord to forgive those who kill him for that act. Paul, in, in Romans chapter 12, commands us to bless those who persecute us, to pray for them, to repay no one evil for evil, to overcome evil with good, and to never avenge ourselves, but rather, he says, leave room for the vengeance of God. I will avenge, God says. Well, now we come to heaven and the attitude of the saints who are in heaven who've died, is glorify your name, destroy the wicked, avenge our blood. Why is it okay for them to want this and not okay for, for us to want this? They don't have sinful flesh twisting and perverting this notion. We're just blind and ignorant as, the, as to the state of other people's lives and other people's hearts. We've got no idea who they are. We've got no, no idea what they, why they do what they do. And frankly, we have no idea who the Lord is going to call to salvation. And so we are not to take vengeance on others. We are, are to love them. We are to pray for them and let God do what he's going to do. In heaven, having been freed from sinful flesh, not that, not that the saints in heaven have got a perfect view of what's going on on earth, but simply having been set free from sinful flesh, they can now ask God to, to avenge them and to vindicate their faith and to glorify his name and destroy the wicked without their own sin polluting that desire. What's interesting is then in verse 11, they were each given a white robe. The only white robe I know of is the righteousness of Christ. And they're told to rest a little longer. We might be tempted, and you might even have a, a translation that says they were told to wait a little longer, but they're not simply told to wait. They're told to rest. They're being cared for there. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who are to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, now, what does this have to do with final judgment? Nothing is said about judgment on earth here. 
Well, what the Lord has just said to, to them at this point, as the great tribulation, as the judgment of God begins to take place, they say, okay, now that judgment is taking place, avenge us. And the Lord says, I will, but there are saints yet to die for their testimony. And when I avenge, I will avenge once and for all time. And so you wait for them. You rest and be patient and wait for them. And those who kill them will suffer the consequences of that sin. They will suffer judgment for the murdering of my saints is what the Lord says. And in doing that, they prove that the judgment against them is perfectly justified and fully justified. We're going to see in the next seal, but I'll just uh, kind of give you a little bit of a, of a heads up. If it were possible for human suffering to humble people and bring them to a desire for forgiveness and knowledge of Christ, then the seven-year tribulation would bring about the greatest revival ever known to man because there's more suffering on the face of the earth during those seven years than there ever has been. And that's actually not what we see. We don't see multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people recognizing the judgment of God and the righteousness of God and the fact that they deserve judgment and so humbling themselves and repenting. Let's read on and you'll see that. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, earlier in the week, if you were at one of the, the studies, I, I talked about a universal impact here. And as I looked at it, I've changed my view. Uh, this is all related to this earthquake. Now, the earthquake, is a, it's a great earthquake, just as there's a great sword, just as there's a great fish. It, it's, it's something that is magnified beyond anything we can comprehend. It's a global earthquake. It's a global earthquake. If you know anything about earthquakes, you'll understand that there can be no such thing as a global earthquake. The surface of the earth is covered with massive plates called tectonic plates. Earthquakes happen along the edges of two plates where they, they butt up against each other and they create friction and they hold until the pressure becomes um, unbearable and then there, it slips just, just a little bit. Sometimes it's just a few inches. I grew up on the, the California coast where the North American plate meets the Pacific plate. Now, the North American plate runs from the California coast to the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. These plates are massive. The Pacific plate runs all the way across the Pacific Ocean to Japan. It basically is a big bowl that holds the Pacific and, and the South Pacific and, and all of that. Well, if you have a place in the middle of the United States that has earthquakes, they're not very strong. They're not very significant. There is a place in Missouri that has been known to have some earthquakes, and they, they look at that and they can see that the crust of that plate is thin there and it ripples. But 
I, I went through a number of major earthquakes just in the, the, the 40 years I lived in California. They were common. You expected them. As a kid, you're sitting having dinner, and, and it just sounds like a, like a bomb going off or a truck hitting something or just a jolt. It's like somebody's standing behind you and just jolts your chair one time. It's an earthquake. Just no big deal. We had earthquakes big enough to empty half the water out of our pool, which was, I think, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, three feet deep at the shallow end, nine feet deep at the deep end. A lot of water for, for one big slosh to just get, get all of that moving. But we don't have earthquakes here. But this is going to be a global earthquake. And that's because it's not through natural causes. It's not through tectonic pressures. It's something that God does deliberately. As a result of this, then the sun becomes black as sackcloth. When there's a major earthquake, you get a huge disruption of dust in the air because of the ground being disturbed. So looking at the sun after that takes place is going to be like looking at the sun now through burlap with it diffused and hard to see. The moon is going to become as red as blood. Well, we kind of get that around harvest. You know, you think when, when all the combines are out there and all that stuff is getting up in the atmosphere and it, and it lingers for a few weeks, you get a full moon and that moon is is on the red side, especially on the horizon. There's going to be so much debris in the air here that it's red everywhere. The stars of the sky are going to fall to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. I think what John is saying is that as, as the earthquake takes place and as that cloud rises, all of those stars are simply going to be covered up. It's going to look like they've all fallen. The sky vanishes like a scroll that's being rolled up. And this is the power of this earthquake. Every mountain and island is moved. Every mountain and island is moved. So whatever else happens as this earthquake takes place, those edges are going to be very, very vulnerable. The Himalaya are created by uh, uh, two different plates. There's a plate in, in India and China, and there's a plate in the Indian Ocean, and the plate in the Indian Ocean is moving north. And as it moves north, it continues to push the Himalayas up. Everest grows by a quarter inch a year. They keep counting the height of Mount Everest as to what it was in 1850. But it grows a quarter inch a year, so it's gone up several feet since then. Well, a couple things that we can say about this then is that the judgment of God is not going to be subtle. There's nothing subtle to this. You can start out and say warring nations, yeah, okay, wars and rumors of wars, wars happen. Violent conflicts between different, different people, yeah, that happens and things are getting ugly and things are getting weird. Famines happen, droughts happen. There can even be uh, really, really significant droughts and famines. That happens. And then as a result of that, you can get pestilence, you can get disease, and you can get just terrible, terrible circumstances. You could blame the famine on global warming if you want to, or global cooling, or the glaciers are getting too thin, or they're not thin enough. Or we, we can always find a reason. But a global earthquake shakes everybody, figuratively speaking. No pun intended. And it let it... it <laughs> 
it makes it clear that this is not subtle, that this is worldwide. And look at the response of the people. Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So one thing about this earthquake is that it once and for all destroys atheism. There's no atheists after this. And I don't know if we're expected to believe that every single person on the face of the earth understands what is happening. But enough understands what's happening in terms of the judgment of God that that's the characteristic. This is the wrath of God. This is the wrath of the Lamb of God. Who can stand? But look at what they do. Wouldn't you want to think after conquering after popular violence, common violence, after uh, a famine that destroys so many, after death and Hades devastate a quarter of the earth's surface. (coughs) And then finally a global earthquake that brings about almost what looks like a nuclear winter. Wouldn't you think that people who are aware that this is the wrath of God coming would humble themselves and repent and pray? Call out for mercy? Appeal to the God who is judging the earth for salvation? They don't do that. They don't do that. The caricature, the characteristic picture of people on earth is that they will prefer death to repentance. They will prefer death to humility. They would rather die in their sins than admit that they were wrong and have eternal life. There's a poem called Invictus. And it's about human pride. And in the final stanza of the the poem, the final four lines, the writer says, it matters not how straight the gate, that is, how strict the standard is, how charged with punishments the scroll, that is, how many crimes I've committed. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The problem is, the man writing that said, I am man, hear me roar. If I choose to go to hell, I choose to go to hell. If I choose to stand and live my life, no matter what, I'm the master of my fate. No, actually, God is. Because no, no matter how much he, he doesn't care about the strictness of the, pun, of the judgment, it, no matter how much he doesn't care about the, the crimes he's committed against God, whatever else he can do, he can't avoid the judgment of God. 
that will fall. And anybody who says, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, for the sake of my own pride, I choose to go to hell rather than accept mercy. That's, a, that's an idiot. That's a fool. But nobody actually believes that in our time. It's going to take these significant events to bring that about. Man is not the captain of his fate. God is the captain of his future. So one of the difficulties with dealing with with Revelation uh, specifically is how do we take something with us today? We're talking about events that are going to take place in a future that we, we can't yet imagine. We've got no idea when it'll, when it'll begin. We can't say it'll be tomorrow. We can't say it'll be a hundred years or a thousand years from now. We simply don't know. Peter says, look, the, the Lord is going to do this when he wants to. He doesn't, he, he's not slow as some count slowness. So what do we take away when, when all of these events are off in the future? Well, let, let me give you a couple of, of things. First of all, there are people in our time who believe that there is always time to change. There's plenty of time to change. I've got plenty of time to live my life, and then when I'm older, then I can go ahead and get religious and get right with God. The problem is, even when God brings what I would think to be enormous motivation through these judgments... When applied to the wicked, the judgments of God just stiffened the neck of the wicked. They don't soften anybody's heart. They simply make them persist even more in their wickedness. That's their nature. That's, that's their character. I don't know if any of you have got a, a citrus juicer, but you take an orange, cut it in half, put it in the juicer, and some are just the little plastic things, and some are powered. You take an orange, cut it in half, put it on that juicer, you're going to get orange juice. You can start squeezing harder, but it's not going to turn, turn to grape juice no matter how hard you squeeze. You can run the juicer faster. You can freeze the orange. You can boil the orange. You can do anything you want to the orange. It can only give you orange juice. When you bring all that pressure and judgment to bear on the wicked, you'll never get anything but wickedness out of them. That's all that's in them. That's all that's in them. That's why we have to be born again. That's why we need the mercy of God. Others believe that because God is love, and he is love, others believe that because God is love, he won't actually judge anyone. Not really. Not, I'm not seriously judge them. I mean, you know, he might be a little here and there, but not really judge them. Well, God is righteous, and because of his righteousness, he's going to judge sin. And God is love, and because of his love, he's going to destroy the wicked. Because of his love, he's going to destroy the wicked. See, the wicked are defined as those who are idolaters, who refuse to worship God, and who refuse to honor his son. If we don't understand that God loves his son more than he loves all of creation, and that those who despise the son, those who use the son, those who abuse the son, those who violate the son, those who dishonor the son, face the wrath of the father. God will bring judgment for the sake of love, the love of his son. He'll bring judgment, too, for the sake of his people. If, if you happen to be one of those who, by the, by the predestination, the foreordination, the calling of God, die be, because of your faith, not 
driving down the road listening to KGRD and you get hit by a drunk driver, but you're actually sharing your faith with somebody and somebody else pulls out a gun because you're a Christian and blows you away. God loves you enough to bring judgment down on that person. He does judge out of love. He is love. But because he's love, the wicked will be punished. And so that gives us a, a message for those in our time who say, I've got plenty of time. I've got my whole life. They need to understand that the longer the wickedness sets in, the longer they live that way, the harder they're going to get, not softer. Hebrews 3 says this, and it applies to the lost as we share the gospel, but it also applies to us. This part of Hebrews is actually written to Christians. Hebrews 3, 13 to 15. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. How long do we exhort one another? As long as there's a today to exhort one another in. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence, our original faith firm to the end. People ask me if I believe in once saved, always saved. In a sense, yes, but in a sense, no. What, what people mainly mean by once saved, always saved is, do you believe that you can pray to receive Christ and then walk away and live as though nothing had ever happened and go to heaven? And I would say, no, no. That's because the picture of biblical faith is consistent faith, continuing faith. Not perfect, not flawless faith, but continuing As it is said, he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As Christians, we need to be reminded that a time of judgment is coming. And because that judgment is coming, we dare not live as though there's no such thing as judgment. We also live in the full confidence, if you've put your faith in Christ, that Jesus bore the wrath of God for you, and there is no more wrath of God for you, period. There never will be. There can't be, because Jesus bore the wrath of God for you. The Bible doesn't say he bore it up to a point. He bore it for a moment, that he took 98% or 99%. If he bore the wrath of God and satisfied the wrath of God for you, he satisfied the wrath of God for the remainder of your life. The sin you're going to commit tomorrow has already been borne by Jesus on the cross. There is no more wrath of God. As a child of God, he'll discipline you. But discipline's world's different than punishment. Discipline is correction for the future. I'm going to teach you how to be different tomorrow. (laughs) Punishment's about paying back what you've done. But for those that we know who don't know Christ, when you meet those people who begin to be intrigued as you share the gospel and they say, well, that sounds really interesting, and they, they start showing some hunger, it's okay to urge them today. Today. You need to put your faith in Christ. We had a man at our church in, in California he and his wife had been drug, al- drug addicts, alcoholics, in and out of jail, lots of problems, lots of issues. She got saved, and he came over every once in a while, and we would talk, and she was certainly having an impact on him. 
And a bunch of us were getting ready to go to Promise Keepers in a month, I think. So he came over. We were sitting on our front porch, and he said, I'm going to go down and get saved at Promise Keepers. I said, today's the day. Today's the day. No, I'm going to do it at Promise Keepers. I'm going to do it at Promise Keepers. I said, today's the day. No, 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 no. I'm going to do it at Promise Keepers. Well, if you've ever been to Promise Keepers, the very first thing that happens on Friday night is an evangelistic message followed by an invitation to come down to the field and pray with counselors who are down on the field. As soon as the guy said, if you want to receive Christ, come down, he was on his feet running down. Steps in in, uh, the stadium in, in Oakland, California, where the Raiders played at the time. A week later, he was high as a kite. See, he thought he could manipulate the circumstances. And he wouldn't humble himself and believe in God's time. And so nothing happened except he, he went running down and said some words and then started claiming that he was a Christian and absolutely no change. There never was change in his life. It's okay to say people that we're witnessing to if they begin to move toward Christ and, they be, and then start to hesitate to say today, You don't know that you have a tomorrow. There is no guarantee that any of us in this room, horrifying as it is, any of them in that room have a tomorrow. The most heart-rending funeral I ever did was in California. A young couple had been married for just a few months. His father owned a huge vineyard. He'd wanted to be a, a vineyard owner, and so his father gave him a couple of hundred acres of vines and a house. And on a Friday night, he, he and his wife, he was 21, she was 20. They went to mom and dad's for dinner, and then they walked back through the vineyard in the moonlight home. And she got up early to go running and leaned over to kiss him, and he was cold. It turns out he had a congenital heart defect. And sometime soon after they went to bed, he just shut off. I have never seen grief like out of this girl and her parents and everybody there. You don't know that you have a tomorrow is what we have to tell people. Today is the day. We can't force anybody. We don't want to. But we want to appeal to that reason that says don't count on this happening according to your schedule. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us. We thank you for the love that you have poured out upon us and shown us. We thank you for your grace to us and your mercy to us in calling us to salvation. We ask, Lord, that you would confirm that call in our hearts by keeping us faithful, by keeping our eyes on Christ always by slapping our hands when we begin to drift, by disciplining us when we begin thinking that we save ourselves or we keep ourselves saved or that there's hope in some other place. We can fall into the deception of the enemy for a time. We know that you'll rescue us, but we ask that you do that. And Lord, for those that we know and love who don't know you, we ask for the sake of your love and for your glory that you would call them
that you would give them faith, that you would give them eternal life, that you would cause them to be born again, that you would use us any way that you choose to speak the gospel to them. And Lord, give us the boldness to say in those moments when it's the right thing to say, today is the day. And to urge people to believe, to repent and believe the gospel. We thank you for this time. We ask that these words would continue to resonate and you would continue to strengthen us. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.